A few of us have survived them, but this is not due to anything that we have done, but to the mercy of the Lord. Savage tribes in countless numbers have overrun parts of Gaul. The whole country between the Alps and the Pyrenees, between the Rhine and the ocean, has been laid waste by hordes of Vandals, Samaritans, Alans, Gepids, Saxons, Burgundians, Alemanni, and alas, even Pannonians. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Medieval Podcast, where today we are travelling back to the beginning, to the time when the old classical world is giving way to the new medieval one. Now, many people, um, many different historians will track a different time as to when this um, period happened, but um, for the purposes of my book, uh, Sainthood, a new history of the Middle Ages through saints and their stories. Our story in the medieval era begins with none other than St. Augustine, a man between two worlds, representing both of those worlds, the old and the new, which I hope that once we get, once we dive into, they'll all become clear. So whilst many historians of the Middle Ages begin and end with a former world, one in which Rome falls to barbarians and a periodic collapse of civilization ensues, if we reframe our perspective around one of the greatest and well-known contemporary saints and church fathers of this period, then a vastly different understanding of the birth of the medieval era arises. As such, rather than diving into the heart of the empire, our story begins on its outskirts at Hippo in modern-day Algeria, where, in the face of violence and destruction at the hands of pagans, a theologian and philosopher was contemplating and constructing one of the most influential early texts that would shape the future of Christianity. Born in 354 to an aristocratic family in Thagast, now Sukharas in Algeria, Augustine represents the melting pot of culture, ethnicity and religion within the Roman Empire. His mother, known as Monica, who is a saint in her own right, was a devout Christian, whilst his father was um, a staunch pagan who only sought to convert to Christianity on his deathbed. This, combined with the hybridised culture of North African Berber heritage with a Romanized administration, meant that Augustine stood at the conflicting intersection of theological and cultural tensions which would dramatically collide within his lifetime. Nevertheless, though regarded as a church father and saint, his early life, as he admits in the Confessions, was marked by a pursuit of pagan beliefs and sinful practices. At the age of 17, while studying at Carthage, he drank, stole, enjoyed sexual exploits, and sought to indulge in his desires through a hedonistic lifestyle. He also read a great deal of Cicero, which he described as having a lasting impression on him, and developed his enthusiasm for philosophy. Much to his mother's disappointment, however, Augustine flirted with pagan beliefs and adopted Manichaeism a highly influential belief system which arose in North Africa in the 270s and contained elements of Christianity and Zoroastrianism. 
The basis of this ideology was that the world is a battlefield between God and Satan, and humans are merely caught between this and can only escape through meditation and aestheticism. During his residence at Carthage, Augustine also fell deeply in love with a young woman. Being of lower class, his mother discouraged the relationship and warned Augustine of his sexual desire and pursuit of sex outside of marriage. However, Augustine continued his, with his mistress and who ended up giving birth to a boy, a Deodatus, in 372. Like Augustine, his son was regarded as an extremely intelligent um, by his contemporaries. Between 372 and 384, Augustine and his family moved to Carthage, uh, moved to Rome from Carthage, and then on to Milan, teaching grammar, philosophy, politics, and Latin. During this time, however, he became increasingly disenchanted by the pagan beliefs that he had once subscribed to, primarily due to the ideas around evil and responsibility. A primary factor of this ideology that he had become accustomed to was that humans were absolved from evil rather than simply, um, rather they simply lived alongside it. Augustine, however, disagreed and believed that if God gave humans the ability to decide their actions and deeds, otherwise known as free will, the evil was inevitable. This led him to Neoplatonism, a philosophical movement created by Platonius, a follower of Plato. Neoplatonism distinguished the physical world from the intangible world of ideas, believing that evil resided only in the physical world as it was imperfect, changeable and perishable. Therefore, the physical world was an imitation of the perfect perfection of the eternal. Nevertheless, the 380s would prove to push Augustine to his limits, and it was during this time that the spark of Christianity grew within him. Whilst at Milan, Emperor Theodosius I passed the Edict of Thessalonica in 380, which declared that Christianity was the only legitimate religion within the empire, putting to an end the hybridised melting pot of theology Augustine had grew up with. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, was a strong supporter of Theodosius and his tightening grip on pagan beliefs. Though Augustine was not a strong Christian, Ambrose played a strong role in leading Augustine to re-evaluate his life and change his faith. Augustine writes, and I began to love him, of course, not at the first as a teacher of truth, for I had entirely despaired of finding that in thy church but as a friendly man. In his confessions, Augustine also states, that man of God received me as a father would and welcomed my coming as a good bishop should. Now this bustling relationship, however, was cultivated in part through a series of devastating setbacks. The adoption of Augustine by Ambrose as a spiritual father was the result of Augustine's actual father passing earlier that year. Equally, around the same time, Augustine was forced to forsake his mistress of 15 years and the mother of his beloved son as he was betrothed to a respectable young woman by his mother. Of this, he wrote, My mistress, being torn from my side as an impediment to my marriage, my heart, which clave to her, was racked and wounded and bleeding. 
In 382, Theodosius tightened his grip further by issuing a decree that all Manichaean monks were to be put to death, further pushing Augustine away from his past philosophical and theological interests. In a desperate time of need, Augustine writes in his confessions that, at the age of 31, in the year 386, he heard a child's voice call out to him to take up and read. So he grabbed the nearest book to him, a random page in St Paul's writings, and he read Romans 13, 13-14, which says, Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. Now this resonated with the sinful life that Augustine had lived until now, one which was marked by desire, lust, drunkenness, theft, fornication and immorality. As such, he writes in his confessions, Belatedly I loved thee, O beauty so ancient and so new, belatedly I loved thee. For see, thou wast within, and I was without, and I sought thee out there. Unlovely, I rushed heedlessly among the lovely things thou hast made. Thou wast with me, but I was not with thee. Thou things kept me far from thee, even though they were not all, uh, even though they were not at all, unless they were in thee. Thou didst call and cry aloud, and didst force open my deafness. Thou didst gleam and shine, and didst chase away my blindness. Thou didst breathe fragrant odours, and I drew in my breath, and now I pant for thee. I tasted, and now I hunger and thirst. Thou didst touched me, and I burned for thy peace. Now the Confessions of St Augustine, which consists of 13 books written in the late 390s, though autobiographical, provides historians with an incredible insight into the mind and contemplation of a man who finds God and Christianity in a deeply dark time, both in his own life and, as we will see, in the world around him. As such, a reader may find incredible discussions about anxiety, insecurity, free will, causality, and other philosophical topics. Nevertheless, by 837, both Augustine and his son were baptised by Ambrose in Milan, and in the following year, however, Augustine's life collapse, collapses further. Whilst returning to Africa, both Augustine's mother and son successively pass away, leaving Augustine as the only remaining member of his family. It is reasonable to say that this, his fascination and contemplation of evil on earth arises from the collapse of his beloved family unit, which was an extremely important aspect to his life, and it happened within an extremely short period of time. The result of these tragedies was a complete surrender to Christianity. He converted the family home into a monastery, sold his patrimony, and gave away his money to the poor. In 391, he became an ordained priest at Hippo, began preaching thousands of sermons, and he is known to have also preached against the very pagan beliefs that he had once endorsed. That being said, the style in which he preached was heavily influenced by the ideas of Neoplatonism, especially in the duality of the physical versus spiritual world. Such a notion provides the basis of his work, City of God, which will shortly be explored further. 
Nevertheless, in 395, he became a coadjutor bishop of Hippo, which then is where he gets his name, Augustine of Hippo, a position which he would hold until his death in 430. Now, up until this time, the Roman Empire had witnessed multiple conflicts which were sowing the seeds of the eventual collapse of the empire. It is worth noting that the Roman Empire was so vast that it was split between two co-rulers and courts, one in the east, based at Rome, and one in the west. Sorry, one at the east, based in Constantinople, and one in the west, based at Rome. Upon his ascension, Theodosius was the eastern counterpart to his co-emperor Val uh, Valentian II in the west and had to immediately contend with a migrant crisis and devastating war in the Balkans. To understand the seeds of this crisis, the arrival of the Huns in the 330s on the Volga must be understood. Travelling from the steppe, the Huns displaced the tribal inhabitants of modern-day Ukraine, Romania and Moldova, also known as the Alans and Goths. After a series of conflicts between the Huns and Alans which led to their defeat, the Huns moved to invade the Goths. Due to their enhanced tactics on horseback, an incredibly deadly use of archery which could pierce armour at 100 metres, they devastated the homes of the Goths. In response to this, Goth refugees left their homes and sought out the Roman borders of the Balkans to be protected from this threat. For the Romans, this decision would be a the flutter of the butterfly's wing which would cause the eventual hurricane of their downfall. In 376, the Balkans was thus caught in a mi migrant crisis along the river Danube. Whilst it is difficult to know how many refugees there were, it can be said with a degree of certainty that the numbers were in their tens of thousands. The task of dealing with this epidemic was given to Eastern Emperor Valens, who preceded Theodosius. Set with a moral and practical conflict between accepting thousands of foreign refugees or refusing them to be slaughtered by the Huns, Valens had to contend with public order, food supply, disease, but also the idea of cheap labour, foreign military and obligations. It is estimated that 15 to 20,000 Goths crossed the Danube to be rehomed in an event which Valens thought to be a victory as he accepted the migrants into his country. Nevertheless, whilst this programme of resettlement for Goth refugees to within the empire may have been superficially positive, exploitation and violence quickly turned it bitter. Although welcomed into the Balkans, there was some underlying animosity on both sides which arose from previous wars fought between the Romans and Goths from 367 to 369. It may be suggested too that the economic sanctions levied on the Goths, combined with their losses in those wars, resulted in the weakened state which left them open to Hunnic invasion. As such, the Roman officials coordinating this process Lupicinus and Maximus took advantage of starving families to send child slaves in return for dog meat. Equally, alongside abusing the Goths, they failed to keep tabs on the condition that only Goths were allowed within the borders. Because of this, Thrace became a mixing pot of thousands of different tribal inhabitants, most of whom were illegal. 
Although Valens believed that the infrastructure of the Romans could maintain these refugees, food supply quickly ran out due to conflicts between the Romans and Persians elsewhere. In 377, the Goths began a series of plundering Thracian estates which led to warfare between the Goths and Romans. Overpowering the army stationed in the Balkans, the Goths and Alans combined forces to invade the surrounding area, coming as close to the walls of Constantinople itself. Valens had to thus let a pressing migrant issue become a vast international crisis, which threatened the integrity of the empire. At the head of an army, Valens marched to the Balkans, to Adrianople, where a large cohort of around 10,000 Goths had gathered under the command of the, Thur the Thuringian Gothic chieftain Fritigern. Valens marched eight miles in uh, the August sun outside of the fortified encampment to meet the Goth army, who was setting a light to the dry grass in the plains surrounding them. According to sources, the Goths apparently sent envoys to negotiate a truce, truce, but this was all in part of a trap being laid by the Gothic leaders. Exhausted and depleted after unsuccessful negotiations, the Roman army decided to launch an attack, a charge, on the Goths. During the violent battle, the Romans, who had believed the Goth army to be only 10,000 strong at best, were wrong. Columns of barbarians set upon the Romans one by one for what seemed to be an endless battle. The trap that was set during the negotiations was then released, and a hidden detachment of Goth cavalry away from Roman scouts charged, closely charged to the closely packed Roman army. Valens was decisively defeated, and the cost to Rome was severe, especially since Valens himself was killed in battle. Now we return to Theodosius, who in inherited an empire in a major crisis after a heavy defeat. It must be said, however, that although the migrant crisis was devastating, Theodosius was able to recover a degree of stability. He implemented stern measures of conscription, punishments for desertion, and reinforced units of non-Roman auxiliaries, some of whom were Goths. As a result of this, a series of minor successes were achieved, and a major life-threatening illness forced Theodosius to retreat and reduce the war progress. Believing stability in the region was attained, he requested baptism and proceeded to move his court to Constantinople in 380. In the following year, Athanaric, a Gothic leader, visited the court to offer his submission. Though a propaganda victory, Theodosius saw that the Goths could not be completed, completely defeated and exiled from the region. Whilst minor victories continued to be achieved within Macedonia and Thessaly, an incursion of Skiri and Huns across the Danube threatened the stability of the Balkans once more. Negotiations thereafter took place in 382 to allow the Goths to settle in the region and provide a military service for Rome. They were, however, unable to remain autonomous. Sorry, they were, however, able to remain autonomous under their own leaders, which enabled them to remain strong and unified. Theodosius's reign in the 380s was also characterized by discontent, rivalry, and civil war. In 383, Magnus Maximus proclaimed himself Emperor in Britain. 
Theodosius was unable to combat this growing threat due to the Balkan conflict, but the result of such absence allowed Maximus to seize much of the east, including Italy. In 388, Theodosius was able to recover the majority of this land, but it came to blows at the Battle of Potovio in 388, whose defeat made Theodosius the de facto ruler of the Western Empire in 389. Theodosius thus became the last emperor to rule the Roman Empire as a whole, which enabled stability to be instilled. Internally, whilst it may seem as though Theodosius, through his Edict of Thessalonica, was a ruler who sought to stamp out pagan religion, as a ruler of a combined Roman Empire, he adopted a moderate policy towards non-Christians. Whilst he supported the preservation of temples, appointed pagans to high offices, and allowed pagan practices, he turned pagan holidays into work days, banned animal sacrifice, divination, and apostasy, and issues and issued a number of laws against paganism. Despite this, however, he took care to ensure that the pagan population, which was still the majority by the 4th century, was not discontent with his reign, and he appointed two pagan consuls, Tat uh, Tatianus and uh, Symmachus, uh, to administrative posts in 391. It is for these reasons that calling Theodosius a pious emperor is somewhat of an exaggeration and an image fabricated by non-contemporaries in successive centuries. Archaeological evidence as well as the hybridization of language, culture and religion within society and individuals like Augustine suggests that paganism saw a slow decline rather than being a victim of pious crusade by Theodosius. If Augustine's meandering between belief systems throughout his life is any testament to this, the relationship between paganism and Christianity can be understood through a lens of coexistence. In the year that Augustine became Bishop of Hippo, Theodosius died and was succeeded by his brother, uh, sorry, by his younger son, Honorius. With the death of Theodosius, the empire returned to its co-ruler split, and Honorius was appointed as emperor of the western half, whilst his brother, Acadius, ruled the east. From hereafter does the timer towards the collapse of the empire begin to increase rapidly. Honorius was young when he succeeded as emperor, and thus relied on the military prowess and leadership of Stilicho one of the most powerful men in the Western Roman Empire and, like Augustine, a product of cultural and religious hybridity within the empire, as he was part Vandal. Now, at the time of Stilicho's rise to power, the events of the Gothic migrant crisis were seemingly in the past, yet the causes of the crisis were still prevalent, and the resurgence of the Huns were once again migrating in the 390s. Though Huns originated in northern China, in over four decades from the 380s to the 420s, they had travelled over 1,700 kilometres in great numbers to Europe, scattering the various tribal inhabitants in the, in the process. Whilst in the 370s they had displaced the Goths, now in the 390s it was the Alans, Vandals and Burgundians to name a few. The Huns, however, were not entirely a nuisance, as many did opt um, to provide their military knowledge and prowess to the Romans, and Stilicho himself had various Hunnic 
um, personal bodyguards. Nevertheless, the Great Hun Surge during this period caused widespread panic among the Roman tribes alike. As such, the Roman borders were continuously battered by conflicts as well as migrant crisis from 405 to 410. These forces were in no small number either. In 405, along the Alpine border, a Gothic king, Radagasius, appeared with a migrant horde of a hundred thousand, a fifth of whom were warriors. Though through a series of successful battles, he, was, he forced his way into Italy, ensuing panic in Rome. Stilicho, who was in command of the armies tasked at repelling these tribal invaders, had the power to do so. Um, but took too long in gathering his hired Allen and Hunnic mercenaries, forces stationed in the Rhineland and Italian armies. In fact, it took six months after the initial invasion by Radagasus for Stilicho to raise and assemble his armies. All in the meanwhile was Radagasus able to conquer and pillage as far south as Florence. Nevertheless, Stilicho was able to determine uh, to decimate um, the, his is, uh, sti nevertheless, Stilicho was able to decimate their armies, capture Radagasius, and free Italy from its periodic crisis. Though this was a victory, pulling resources and men from regions across the empire left large vulnerable gaps along the borders. Unlike a war with a single king where a relatively small area emerges as the battlefield, this war was being fought against multiple kings across multiple battlefields in multiple principalities. Within a year, Vandals, Alans, Suaves poured into the undefended borders of Gaul and Britain. In the process, hundreds of Christians and churches were attacked and ravaged by barbarians. Famine ensued and blood ran through the streets. A fellow saint and contemporary to Augustine, Jerome, from th who lived from 340 to 420, writes about the fate of Rome, which details the sheer number of tribes entering the Roman borders. A few of us have survived them, but this is not due to anything we have done ourselves, but to the mercy of the Lord. Savage tribes in countless numbers have overrun all parts of Gaul, the whole country between the Alps and the Pyrenees, between the Rhine and the ocean, has been laid waste to hordes of Vandals, Samaritans, Alans, Gepids, Saxons, Burgundians, Alemanni, and alas, even Pannonians. The powerful city of Rem, the Abiani, the Atrobate, the uh, Belgians on the skirts of the world, Tournai, Spires, Strasbourg have fallen to Germany, whilst the provinces of Aquitaine, the nation of uh, the nine nations of Lyon, of Narbonne, all with the exception of a few cities, one universal scene of desolation, and those which the sword spares without famine ravages within. I cannot speak without tears of Toulouse, which has been kept from falling by merits of its reverend bishop. What is seemingly most distressing to Jerome and contemporaries is that unlike previous wars within their lifetime, this was being fought within their borders. Yet who will hereafter credit the fact, or what histories will seriously discuss it, that Rome has to fight within her own borders, not for glory but for bare life, and that she does not even fight to 
buys the right to exist by giving gold and sacrificing all her substance. This humiliation has been brought upon her by the fault of her emperors, who are the most who are both most religious men, but by the crime of a half barbarian traitor who with our money has armed our foes against us. Now the so-called half barbarian is Stilicho, who, as we know, was half vandal and hired foreign mercenaries to fight. Nevertheless, Jerome's writing emphasises the awe of fear from the Romans and contains a great deal of insecurity about the uncertain future of the empire. From this point onwards, the collapse of the Roman Empire began to exponentially increase. The Roman armies of Britain entered a state of mutiny, and in 406, two leading officers of the army, Marcus and Gratius proclaimed themselves emperor before being murdered by their men. Nevertheless, in 407, Constantine III gained control of the British armies and declared himself as leader from the Western Empire and withdrew all military forces to Gaul to aid in the war efforts. In 408, the Huns, whom this European crisis is attributed to, made a direct attack on the Lower Danube. Henceforth, the whole empire was under attack from all angles. A regular nuisance of the Romans and Stilicho was Alaric, king of the Visigoths. Now, unlike other invaders like Radagasus, Alaric was a Christian and led a warband of Goths and other tribes within the Roman army itself. In 395, however, he betrayed his Roman commanders to become king of a collective coalition of tens of thousands, known as the Visigoths. In 401 to 402, and in 403, Alaric attempted to invade Italy, only to be triumphed each time by Stilicho. Alaric, however, in 408, joined a mass onslaught of invaders in Gaul to get his piece of the pie. Coordinating a joined uh, attack on Ravenna, he sent word to Honorius's court to negotiate the payment of £3,000 of silver in order for him not to invade. Stilicho, as Jerome tells us, gave in to his demands, believing that his forces were already too far stretched. The Senate, however, were, were deeply displeased by Stilicho's progress and used his vandal heritage in a racially charged campaign to accuse him of having an alliance with Alaric. In 408, Stilicho was unable to combat the slanderous campaigns and many of his loyal officers were murdered. Honorius also cancelled the silver payments to Alaric, which resulted in an attack on Ravenna six months later. After this, Stilicho dies. Alaric then um, commits to a series of sieges on Rome due to its weakened state. And these, most of these take place and, are pay and payoffs are given, left, right and centre, to Alaric. Nevertheless, the third siege um, is where Rome is sacked in 410. On the 24th of August, the Visigoths entered Rome through its Salarian Gate and ransacked the city. Across the uh, Mediterranean is then when we return to St. Augustine. Because in his City of God, which Augustine writes regarding the fall of Rome, a lot, many of the books are dedicated to the enemies of Christianity. Now, what's interesting in book one is 
um, Augustine's focus on an incident that happened during the sack of Rome, whereby many Romans um, and enemies of Christianity were spared through taking um, through taking refuge in a basilica, otherwise a Christian church. Now, again, um, like himself, many pagans converted and correct their godless errors during this time, and. Um, and Augustine makes a point of saying that the basilicas of apostles afforded shelter to fugitives, both Christian and pagan. Their monstrous passion for violence was brought to a sudden halt, something that you do not see in other, um, in other wars. And these survivors blame Christ, even though Christ saved them. God's providence uses war to correct and chasten the corrupt morals of mankind. So he defends the war. He says, there's nothing to worry about. This has happened before to Rome and it will happen again. He downplays the situation, but he says that we cannot blame Christianity because of this incident, whereby in the basilicas, many Christians and many pagans were saved by Christ himself. And he references examples in history where, um, you know, he says about Ulysses and Diomedes who slew all the warders of the citadel and snatched with bloody hands the sacred image, nor shrank to the touch of the chaplets virginal of the dread goddess. Nevertheless, mercy was given, um, nevertheless, Although Augustine references the examples, we actually do have from history many examples where inhabitants of a city under siege were spared. For example, Alexander at Ty uh, and um, uh, Agesilus um, at Coronia. Um, however, like we say, <coughs> it's Augustine reaffirms the fact that it's not God's fault. And he says how the old Roman gods, for instance, Minerva, um, he talks about also Greek gods, um, did not help Troy when it burned. And thus it was the folly of the Romans to entrust the defense of Rome with these rubbish gods who um, did not defend them. Conquered gods, he calls them, entrusted to um, Aeneas um, in Virgil's... Um, texts rather than um kind of the opposite um so he says how these pagan gods survived because of a man which is really interesting because of course um what you we will come to find in the medieval era is that christianity is constantly under threat it's continuously um contains insecurities anxieties especially with the rise of islam um, which obviously leads to the Crusades, about kind of the survival of their religion, um, <clears throat> especially when the new world is then discovered. Um, and so we see here in the very roots of Christianity with um, Augustine tiltering upon two worlds that although he tries to defend Christianity as much as possible, we can see the anxieties, the insecurities within this. He hopes um, that Christ and Christianity does not fall to the same fate. And we then continue on over the series of books where he references um, Cato, he Sallust, um, different kind of descriptions where Rome has been sacked before. We know, for instance, of course, with Caesar. Caesar invades Rome when he 
crosses the Rubicon. So this has happened before, and um, and and so there's nothing to worry about. But of course, behind it all, we see Augustine being incredibly anxious about the future, and no wonder, because in a sense, this is a battle between um you know this is foreign invaders rome is very multicultural we see um augustine being the product of a multicultural culture and now we're kind of doubling down we see um stilico being attacked for being half vandal and it reminds us a lot of 9-11 an attack never before seen on home soil that shakes the world into a new age and we see in the aftermath and during um, these troubled times, an attack on foreign people. We see, especially in America, an attack on Muslims, on um, foreign Americans, especially kind of Muslim Americans. Um, and this kind of doubling down on, on, I guess, this kind of nationalism and this kind of almost um, racial purity. And we see the exact same thing happening at Rome. Augustine, um, who is half Berber um, is is kind of fearing an attack. Um, I would say um, in his writing, and actually um, he dies during the um, Vandal siege of Hippo, um, and never uh, and is basically dies in what is a, a very much so a dying world. However, the historians ask we must ask: Is this the end of a, a definitive end, or is it a transition? Because, like I say. Um, Augustine stands at the on the tipping point of two worlds. So we see him, for instance, in his writing. There's a mass number of um, references to, like I say, Sallust, um, to Virgil, to kind of classical writers. But at the same time, the way that he's writing um, is very typical of something that will re-emerge in the medieval era and also the way in which he talks about miracles the way he talks about faith and martyrs um, is something that will continue into the medieval era with christianity especially when saints um, become increasingly more popular and so he is on the pinnacle on the tipping point of two worlds um, which again, the reason why that I'm writing the book um, using saints is because they are such a perfect microcosm of what's going on. The anxieties that we see Augustine write about in the city of God, about the kind of physical versus the um, ethereal, the anxieties about multiculturalism, about religion, about foreign invaders, and then this kind of reassertion of Christianity through it is something that we can see reflected in the world around him. And so there we go. Thank you ever so much for watching. I do hope you find it uh, interesting. Like I say, this is um, this video comes from me writing the first chapter of my book. Um, so I hope to do more if people enjoy it um, as I kind of go on writing. And then I guess, well, by the end of it, it would almost be like an audio book, really. Um, but there we are. Thank you ever so much. And be sure to read The City of God, read his confessions, because... You know, we talk about mental health, we talk about well-being and all these different things. You know, there's a really interesting quote from Augustine in the Confessions, I believe, where he basically does say, you know, don't listen to the haters. Um, and so it's these modern concepts that we actually see are being talked about 1600 years ago, 
which is really really special so there we are thank you ever so much i hope you enjoyed see you next time